Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. And this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Today, it's Wednesday, uh, February the 14th, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, uh, wherever you are in the ecosystem of relationships, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of funny ad lib. Uh, In any case, we're the day after this special election out in basically the New York suburbs. Uh, New York's third district is, third congressional district is a small little chunk of Queens and mostly in Nassau County, which is the first county you hit once you leave New York City and go into into Long Island. And as you know, this was George Santos's district. And of course, he was expelled from Congress, uh, I believe back in, I don't know, sometime in the fall. Do you know that the- December. The, the, Okay. Mm -hmm. I thought it was December, but it's funny. That seems so recent. Um, I know. (laughs) But yeah. But in any case, as as I'm sure you know, by the time you listen to this, uh, Tom uh, Swazi, who actually had this seat before George Santos, he didn't lose to George Santos. He gave up the seat to run for governor, which was pretty dumb since there was no (laughs) way he was going to win. But he gave up the seat that way. Now he's back. So, you know, Nature is healing itself, basically, <laughs> uh, and and the the result was, you know, if if we stepped back from everything that has happened over the last, uh, I don't know whether to say two to four years or four to eight years, whatever. But this is a obviously New York State and certainly New York City is a very democratic area. This though is kind of a swing, Dem-leaning swing district just just into the suburbs. And as of what we know right now, uh, basically they're done counting. It's ba- about an eight-point margin. So if we set aside all of the chatter, that is not a terribly surprising uh, result. But we can't set aside the chatter because this is the world we live in. And as you know, this was being pumped up as kind of a bellwether for the 2024 cycle, a, a kind of a lightning rod to pull in all the vibe and doom scrolling energy about Joe Biden and all this kind of stuff. And it even got pulled in towards the final days of the election as a referendum possibly on immigration. And it is true, you know, I I never watch uh, broadcast TV anymore. I barely don't watch 
TV anymore at all. Not as some kind of like rule. I just don't when I was, when I was, I, you know, love TV when I was younger. In any case, this little biographical interlude is to get us to the point that I see TV when I go to the gym. And that kind of gave me a look into these ads. And there were a ton of these of these ads. And it is true, you know, they were they were hitting on the abortion issue early. And in the last week or so, they turned heavily towards immigration. So all of this stuff and in the final analysis, it has ended up being kind of another one of these special elections, midterm elections, where there's a lot of a lot of chatter and for Democrats, a lot of worry. And it ends up that the Democrat wins and even sort of, you know, exceeds expected margins and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to dig into that. And, you know, we'll look at the race on its own merits and also try to understand how it fits into the sort of the the chattering and vibes world that we, if you were a you know, kind of a political junkie or live in the political world, the world that you live in. But to, to start there, you know, uh, Kate, let me, let me bring in my co-host, Kate Riga. Uh, Kate, I did a tweet last night where I said, you know, is, is this finally going to force a, a reckoning for the vibes industry? Because the vibes industry has missed a lot of calls on elections in the last couple of cycles. And it's, it's kind of striking because um, there were a lot of people, a lot of prestige reporters, political influencers, and so forth over the last you know, 48 hours before the election saying, don't let anybody tell you anybody knows how this thing is going to turn out. <laughs> the insiders make clear it's a total toss up. No one knows. Democrats are very worried and, you know, an eight point margin. So what, what do you what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, you can already tell that we're seeing the adjustment of, yeah, Democrats won, but it doesn't matter. It's a special election, can't extrapolate. Whereas, you know, come on, like if the Republicans had held that seat, all the framing would have been, Democrats are in trouble. This is because of Biden's age. This is a bellwether. Where goes New York third? Goes the rest of the country? So, yeah, I mean, we were kind of told that this was neck and neck, that it was, you know, the snowstorm was going to be possibly the deciding factor in the race. And as you say, Swazi won it by eight points. Santos had won it by eight points last time. So that's like a net 16 point increase. We had another kind of much lower profile race last night in the Pennsylvania House where it had previously been tied. A Republican uh, retired last week. So this was kind of the chance for Republicans to tie it up again or Democrats to win the majority. The Democrat won pretty hugely. Like it was already a kind of Biden favoring seat, but he, you know, he trounced one really, really heavily. So all of this to say, I think, at least to me, this was a much needed corrective because, you know, on this show, we've been kind of making fun of the the vibes session for a while. You know, the, the kind of constant refrain that we see in every election cycle, which is Democrats have a lot to worry about. Democrats have a lot to be anxious about, whereas Republicans who pretty clearly have quite a weak brand are just never treated the same way. Also, Democrats are just like perennially anxious people, you know, at every level. So there's just this constant defensive crouch. And that has, you know, as we'll get to later in the show, really intensified, I think, these last couple of weeks with the her report and the kind of reigniting of the whole Biden is kind of falling apart before our eyes discourse. So I think this election was a pretty big deal. I take the point that it's a special election, that it was pretty low turnout. It's a specific area of the country. All that is true. However, this is the terrain that, as you say, Biden won in 2020. Republicans flipped back in 2022. It helped them win the House majority. And winning this seat has kind of ripple effects, both long term and short. You know, in the immediate term, he's going to be seated right away. Mike Johnson's majority is even tinier. 
So that's going to matter, especially because as we're coming up to the spring, April 30th is when those sequestration deadlines hit, where if they haven't fully funded the government, there are these kind of draconian across the board slashes. Um, That is going to be the toughest kind of legislative session that Mike Johnson might ever preside over, you know, depending on how how long his tenure ends up being. Whether he gets to there. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, you know, and and with margins this slim, every vote counts because, you know, if he had gotten the win in this seat, well, maybe you can like kind of ignore Matt Gates a little bit, right? You can offset some of the constant problem children. And now that's not the case. And then you also have, you know, longer term Democrats want to win the House back. These are the seats they have to flip to win the House back. It's their their kind of easiest targets. You know, Hakeem Jeffries kind of has quipped that these seats are rentals, that they're rented by Republicans because Democrats, you know, need to win them back. And then, you know, greater These are the kind of suburban, very swingy areas that Biden won in 2020 and that he's going to have to win again in 2024. And, you know, taking the point that it's limited how much you can extrapolate, blah, blah, blah. But we have not seen from these races these big, huge, glaring warning signs that would match the idea that Biden is an albatross that is going to absolutely tank this election. And even in what scant polling we had of the third district, it showed Biden losing to Trump or at least his favorability, his favorability levels lower than Trump's and yet still showed Swazi ahead kind of more modestly than he ended up doing. But it's that's kind of the rhyme of polls we've seen elsewhere, too, that are tracking both Biden's unpopularity but still the success of Democrats kind of elsewhere on the ticket and Democratic, uh, you know, campaigns like like with abortion referendums in general. So I think we can all emerge from this one feeling like a little bit confident, feeling a little bit reminded that a lot of the doom and gloom for Democrats is narrative. It doesn't tend to be really pegged to data points too much. It's more of just, you know, reporters grand sense of how things are going. And then that gets translated into articles. And again, we'll get to all this, not to say that, you know, the Biden age thing isn't a problem, that the her report isn't a problem, but we are still not seeing signs of like a cataclysmic collapse for Democrats. And I do think part of that is the paradigm shift that in special elections, now Democrats have the edge, which I still have trouble getting my mind around because that is so counter to the conventional wisdom that kind of guided our politics for a long time, that Democrats are now kind of the party of the the civically responsible voters who kind of come out in the low turnout ones as well. And, you know, so some of that might be kind of shifted and, and scrambled around on a presidential election year where we have a lot more people come out still there's no way to spin this. That is not a positive data point for Democrats. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that that I took away from this and you alluded to it is we've heard the whole conversation about special elections, not representative. That is largely true. It's not, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. What, what I took, though, is that we had a small number of polls and they, every one showed Swazi winning. Um, there was one that had him up three points, two that had him up four points. The final one had him up one point. He won by eight points. That is significantly, you know, that's a significantly larger margin. In any one race, and certainly any one poll, that's basically the margin of error. That doesn't really, you know, doesn't tell you a huge amount. But this has been a fairly consistent pattern uh, that polls seem to be understating democratic strength by a small but meaningful margin. And we have seen this, uh, we've seen it fairly consistently really since Dobbs. That is the pivot point. And that is a, and to, to back up, special elections can be hard to poll because they're low turnout, there are all these idiosyncrasies to them, but they shouldn't be hard to poll always in one direction. And the, you know, when you talk about who's going to turn out, that's why you have likely voter models. There are ways that pollsters have to you know, low turnout election. It's going it, it's, it's to be the consistent voters. So even with all those things, you do have this pattern of polls seeming to, again, underestimate 
democratic strength in this small, but what can be a pretty decisive number. I mean, if you if you have a, a four-point swing, that's a pretty big deal. A lot of toss-ups will go in one direction. And there's a lot of things you can ask about why that would be the case. Is it, you know, during the the first years of the Trump era, there was this idea that pollsters were missing a lot of these disaffected, you know, occasional turnout voters. And you don't pick them up because the same thing that makes them occasional voters makes them not pick up the phone or makes them feel, you know, not trusting of pollsters and and all this kind of stuff. It's a little hard to figure that they would be that these polls would be picking would be missing Democrats in the same way. Democrats are more civic minded. You can't say they're not enthusiastic, certainly compared to earlier Democratic coalitions. They tend to be demographically the kind of people, you know, who show up at the polls. The explanation that a lot of us gravitate towards, and I think I do, is that what you're seeing in a lot of these polls is people, the for lack of a better word, the disaffected people showing up in the polls, but they're not actually voting. Or they're kind of saying, yeah, you know, I don't like Biden. I'll try Trump again. But they're not people who are actually showing, you know, on election days. Now, there's all sorts of ways you can assemble the facts to tell yourself different stories. You know, one counter to this is to say maybe it's back to that old thing from you know from Trump's presidency that the, the the real issue is when Trump is on the ballot when he's on the ballot these people show up when he's not i.e 2018 all this kind of stuff maybe but this does this is a meaningful data point because it matches with a lot of other recent data points and whatever reason that differential is showing up, it does suggest that current polls are missing some democratic strength. And in and in a polarized era where kind of everything is basically 50-50 or close to it, that's, you know, that makes a difference. It makes a difference. Totally. And I want to talk briefly about kind of the kind of campaigns these two people ran, because I think we're going to see a lot of hot takes, you know, kind of using the the campaign that Swazi ran as a potential model for other Democrats. And the biggest piece of that, I think, is the immigration thing, right? Mozzie Pillip, the, the Republican who I think in general was like a, a pretty weak candidate. This is why I always, it made me scrunch up my face a little bit when I read all these takes about how this was neck and neck and was anybody's game because she's got a, a really fascinating life story you know, an immigrant from Ethiopia and served uh, in the Israeli army and and all that kind of stuff. But she's only a a very recent local legislator. And that's it. That's like the extent of her political experience. Uh, She ran this campaign kind of out of sight. She wouldn't really talk to any media. She only agreed to one debate. And at that debate, I think is when Swazi landed his most damaging blows in terms of uh, abortion, particularly tried to kind of pin her down on her position. And she said she wouldn't support a national ban, but got very kind of squishy on where she stands otherwise, you know, versus Swazi, who's been in politics for forever, right? Like he used to be an, an executive in the county. And like you said, he held the seat for a while and then had the ill-fated gubernatorial run, but he kind of he knows what he's doing to, to an extent. And he ran as kind of a Republican light on the border. He was helped out by the bipartisan package that the Republicans so cynically tanked. He could kind of point to that as that's the kind of border Democrat I am, even though that, that did happen a bit late in the race. But she really tried to grab onto the immigration thing and try to kind of transfer that from New York City, you know, where Abbott has has bust immigrants and all that and kind of transfer that out and say, which is just, it's still a funny thing to me to see like people in New York talking about the border as like the biggest political issue in the campaign. But, you know, everything is national now. That's the world we're in. And so he did just the kind of boring moderate Democrat response where they're all just being like kind of punitive on the border, not as bad as Republicans, but saying, you know, immigration is a bad thing. We need to quash it in in slightly gentler terms. And at least on that topic, either voters didn't 
care about it as much as we think they do, or that response was kind of good enough, which is at least an interesting rejoinder to the Republican slash kind of mainstream media chestnut that immigration is going to damn Democrats in this cycle. Like it's a huge anchor around their necks. It's what Trump's going to focus on. And is, you know, there's been an implication, I think, that, well, immigration is, is going to be the Republican Dobbs, right? It'll kind of bring everything to a draw again on that count. And at least in this race, that did not happen. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a number of people said, as you did, although they put it in a different way, that Swazi tried to put distance between himself and the party. And he did. Actually, one of his ads, it, I, I think I have this right, one of his ads basically started with one of Pillip's ads saying, oh, he's a big time liberal, open borders. And then he comes in and says, what? That's not right. And then he says, like, you know, oh, I'm for this, I'm for that. And that's true. But that's kind of where the Democrats are right now, like the Democrats are, are distancing themselves from their party. You know, does, I mean, they just, they kind of own this compromise bill now, even though in the context of the last two or three years, it basically has not only Republican, you know, policies in it, but mostly Republican, you know, kind of slightly softened Republican policies in it. So in that sense, he's not really in any different place than Joe Biden is. And um, I, I do think that I think the national media overstates to a significant degree the salience of border politics in this election and in the current politics, but it's certainly not insignificant. It's the Republicans' issue. It's kind of their only issue. And it brings together a number of different, I mean, good issues always bring together a number, a, a kind of a, a spectrum of different issues. At one level, you know, it is kind of bizarre to have the U.S.-Mexico border be a big issue in New York City, because what? <laughs> I mean, that makes no sense. However, the, the, you know, these busing asylum seekers and migrants to New York City has become a big issue in, in the city. And I don't mean in the sense of everybody's up in arms about it. But there, it's it's become a big issue finding housing for for all these people because it's it's tens of thousands of uh, of people. So it has it has brought the rising number of asylum seekers. It's made it a a resonant issue in New York City. Not that everybody's against it or you know all the Trumpian they're poisoning the the, the blood of America. But it, it's become a housing issue. It's become a a uh, it's something the city is um, uh, wrestling with. And you know the mayor talks about it. The mayor is pretty conservative in a lot of ways for New York City. In any case, it's not that strange. But my point is, it it hits on this spectrum of issues. It can be sort of like they're taking over our country, Trumpy people, or just the kind of how do what are the nuts and bolts of how we find housing for these people and supply essential services and stuff like that? I have a friend who's an architect who is part of the uh, you, you know a bidding process now for they're going to convert an ex warehouse or factory kind of over in Dumbo or somewhere in Brooklyn. They're they're going to convert it into a big housing complex basically because because there's a lot of uh, immigrants arriving in the city and you you have to find housing for them. So it is hard to say. I mean, there's been some anecdotal evidence, which is to say not evidence, right? This is like a contradiction in terms. But there's been at least some suggestion that he was able to mobilize some voters over Republicans killing this bill, which is generally not something that you can, like you should be able to mobilize against something that's so hypocritical and so sort of anti-civic like that. But generally you can't because in most cases, to, to be paying attention to something like that, you've already got to be pretty politically engaged, in which case you're probably already on one side. But that may have played some some role because it actually was kind of, was relatively high profile. And it was just so like brazen, like dudes, it was your bill. Like what? You know, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? And certainly, uh, you know, Biden's not going to let people forget that. So, you know, all these people, all these things play in. Yeah. And to just kind of put a bow on this, uh, 
our boy George Santos tweeted after the results came in minus one. <laughs> so glad to have his commentary in the mix, uh, at least while he's, you know, still a free man. Still a free man. Yeah, they don't, <laughs> they don't, they take your iPhone when, when you are, uh, when you're checked into, to, to prison. So exactly. enjoy it while you enjoy it while you can. So now we're going to talk about a topic that I'm sure no one is at all tired of, which is Biden's age, which has bubbled to the top again from this special prosecutor support uh, report that we got last week, where this guy, her, who was appointed by Merrick Garland, he was in charge of investigating Biden's handling of the classified documents, which feels like it happened like 20 years ago to me that we had this, you know, obviously it came up and is still coming up with Trump in a big way because he was charged for pretty willfully ignoring and defying every like very solicitous attempt to get him to to put his stuff back. And then in the meantime, you know, our listeners will remember then we found out Mike Pence had done it too. And then Joe Biden. And it's just became pretty clear that it's really hard to kind of stop presidents and vice presidents from, you know, not maliciously, except in the case of Trump, but, you know, kind of leaving the office, taking a ton of their papers with them. And oops, there's some stuff wrapped up in there that they shouldn't have. Mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. And in the normal course of business, you know, and when they started kind of coming to the fore, the responsible ones looked through their stuff and was like, okay, oops, I hear you guys should have this kind of thing. And because Republicans were screaming about it and Fox News was screaming about it and Democrats can't seem to break the habit of taking what the right says as if it's in good faith, which it basically never is. Biden was like, okay, well, we'll get a special prosecutor on my documents as well. And to kind of avoid even the appearance of impropriety, had Garland pick this guy who was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney to do the investigation. And that was, I think, 15 months ago is when that started. And now this report is the conclusion. And as everyone will have seen by now, the big headline from it is that they didn't want to take this in front of a jury because they're worried that they will see Biden as a well-meaning elderly man with serious memory problems. And that is the line that has been heard around the world. The other parts of the report which he buried, by the way, um, but all of the kind of proof in Biden's favor that there was no maliciousness here, that it was the same kind of careless bundling of stuff at the end of a term that everyone else did. That's really shoved down, um, as is his graciousness towards other people's memory lapses. You know, I think there's one part where it's a, I think a, a Biden lawyer of some sort who didn't remember the, the exact time when something happened. And it says in the report, like, you know, but that was a long time ago. So this kind of makes sense. Whereas with Biden, it's he couldn't remember anything. He didn't know the years he was vice president. He didn't know when his son died in a particularly gratuitous swipe, which is it's hard to kind of see how that had anything to do with uh, document retention. But, you know, that's peppered throughout. And it's still honestly hard for me to tell how much of that was Biden forgetting years, which, to be honest with you, does not trouble me. Like remembering the exact year that something happened is kind of hard. And I think we all do that. You know, if you think of like, when did you start this job or whatever? Like, it's it's hard to kind of conjure that immediately. But it's also not even clear to me that it wasn't the more standard kind of responses of someone who's being deposed where you say, yeah. I don't recall if you have any uncertainty or even, you know, if it's a, a more strategic thing, you don't want to answer the question. You just say, I don't recall. That kind of gets you out of it. I mean, we see we saw Trump do that like, what, eight billion times and like one of those whatever. It's I don't even remember at this point, but one of his depositions with someone. It's pretty standard one of, issue. One of the many rapes or, or yeah. felonies or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They all exactly. blend together. So it's not even clear to me that it's not just that that's going on. We haven't seen the transcript yet, though Republicans are really eager to get it and to uh, pull her before the oversight committee so they can kind of get all the mileage out of this that they possibly can. Then we had Biden kind of come out and do this little impromptu press conference after uh, this report came out where he was angry, where he kind of tussled with the the White House press corps that was uh, pretty determinedly doing Republican spin on, on this whole affair. And I am just left with this impression of, 
I was so angry when this came out and not because of Her's depiction, because you don't get mad. You know, it's the scorpion and frog story. It's just in his nature. He's a Republican hack who works for Trump. This is what he does. Like, I'm sure he wants Trump to win the presidency. He was bummed. He couldn't find anything to charge Biden for. So he was like, you know what? Let's let's get some political swipes in there. It's the least I can do to help the cause. That's what he does. Why the fuck do Biden and Merrick Garland and co keep putting enemies in the ranks, keep handing weapons to their opponents and being like, I trust that you won't use this and that you will be a stand up person? Like, how much more evidence do we need that the other side does not play by the rules. They do not hold themselves to moral standards. Uh, they don't find it embarrassing when their political hackery is out on display. It's all about winning. It's all about owning the libs. It has been for years. And this Boy Scout behavior of, well, we're going to continue to pick Republicans to investigate us. We're going to continue to pick Republicans to head up all any law enforcement job. This weird seeding of ground that Democrats can't possibly do this fairly or well is just tiresome. As you pointed out in your writing before, Josh, it's been going on for years. It's been going on through multiple Democratic administrations. But at this point, it is just irresponsible. They put this fox in this hen house. And then he acted like everyone expected him to act. And it was incredibly damaging. It, it hit right on Biden's greatest weakness and vulnerability. And now they're in a frenzied attempt to try to figure out how to address this problem and how to do it really quickly with a story that actually might have potential to break through to normal people in the way that, that most political stories don't. So, I mean, that's where I'm left. I, I find this wound completely self-inflicted. I find getting mad at her a waste of time. Like, this is how we should expect these people to behave. And now the problem of Biden's age is at the forefront again. It's an immediate problem. And I'm like a little bit worried about it because I think the natural response to this problem, as we've been saying on the pod for a while, has been get him out there more, right? Like let people kind of see him in action. But I think the problem is, whereas nearly everyone of all partisan stripe says that in private meetings, he's sharp and he's on his shit and he is paying attention. He's been dogged with public speaking problems for a long time. It's both the stutter. It's He's been gaff happy since we've known him. He, you know, he wanders off the point. He he tells stories that don't have punchlines. Like that stuff has been true as long as we've known him. And now he is just, he's visibly older. He's got the arthritis in his back. So he shuffles more and he looks old. His voice is getting a little bit more frail sounding. Like he sounds like an older man. He gets kind of quiet and he swallows his words sometimes. And my concern is that if all that people are going to see from his public appearances are the inevitable missteps, you know, the inevitable uh, you know, bad stretch, even in the context of a greater speech, that like worries me because the only clear remedy I see is prove that the aspersions on his age are wrong, right? Like prove that he can do the job, like show people him working. And if they are not confident that that would be an anecdote, that is what that's what worries me, because I don't I don't know how else to kind of fix the narrative. These little like anonymous quotes from behind closed door meetings like that's not going to cut it, you know. No, it, that is absolutely not going to cut it. And as you know, I, I don't let and I, I don't think this is dis disagreeing with what you said. I don't let her off the hook because he is a hack and it, it's always important to call hacks hacks. I do blame Merrick Garland for this. You certainly don't want, it will not be credible to have a Democratic partisan uh, conduct an investigation like this. But there are plenty of people who are nominal Democrats, nominal Republicans, but don't play in the political lawyering world. If you are getting, with some exceptions, if you are getting, you know, you're getting picked for U.S. attorney, you're getting this. Those people are, they when they pick U.S. attorneys, you know, most U.S. attorneys, I think, can do the job ethically and so on and so forth. But you get those because you involve yourself in the party's work. That's how that works. So it was foolish to to choose someone 
like that. Again, there's lots of people who just have a good reputation as prosecutors. There's even a lot of I'm not even sure I would say evidence, just it's it's the fact that he, you know, was Rod Rosenstein's, Rod Rosenstein's, you know, kind of right hand. And as often happened during the Trump years, you know, R- Rosenstein became sort of like, a, you know, was imagined as a resistance figure because he would not fire Robert Mueller. And, you know, I will give him credit for that. There was a line he would not cross. But within the bounds of not crossing that line, he was doing everything he could to keep the Mueller investigation on a very tight leash. It was stupid to appoint her. As for what that, you know, what is actually in that deposition, I think it's quite possible that in a narrow sense, what he said was accurate. You know, Maybe he didn't remember one, but those things kind of don't really mean anything. In a long deposition, you'll say, oh, I don't remember that, you know, was that this year? Was that that year? But again, it was put together to create an impression of a man who is, has like deep dementia and has very poor recall of anything that has happened in his recent life. And everything that we hear about his actual work as president totally belies that. What you said, and this is the real issue for Biden, is he has that stiff gait, which I think is a combination of some, as you say, some arthritis. He also broke his foot early during his presidency. But you just see that, and that makes him look old. It makes him look like an old guy in a way that Bernie Sanders, who's actually older than him, and Trump, who's a little younger, do not. And that is just a reality that has a big effect, especially on people who are not, you know, not paying a lot of attention to politics. It's also true that he has always had this kind of stutter and, you know, mixing words up and stuff. He's had it since he was you know, uh, younger than I am now. But again, anybody, any any voter who's going to kind of research this and say, hey, it turns out that when he was in his 40s, Joe Biden was kind of talking, well, you know, <laughs> we're not talking about those voters. So it is a real problem. And I think the the way they are going to have to deal with this is they are going to have to put him out in front of cameras, especially doing interviews more. And when they do that, he's going to have times when he bobbles words and swaps one word for another or one name for another. That's just going to happen. What you can't do is once you have these worries, suspicions out there, you can't keep them under wraps because that just amounts to confirmation. And then people can, you know, fill in the blanks with their worries and their desires. And I think you get him out there and people will see, yes, he mixes words up sometimes, but you listen to him talk, you know, that that press conference was a very good example. He was clearly pissed. He gave a series of answers about Israel and Gaza, which were very specific and intricate and getting into the policy questions. And he mixed up one country for another in identifying one person. And that was the only thing that was reported. The only thing you heard out of that entire thing was, ah, he he confused this country with another country. He didn't confuse any country with any other country. He It was very clear what he was talking about. He mixed up one word and that's just, that's just what it is. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. People already have these suspicions and worries. You need to get him out there more and sort of acclimate people to, he talks funny, he scrambles up words sometimes, but you listen to him, he's clearly there. And you're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to do something where people say, wow, he's like young and vigorous and he, you think he was 60. Like, no, that's just not going to happen. And that's not, that's not where we are. But I do think, you know, when you, unlike the vast majority of the population, I've watched a number of interviews he's done over the last year. And he does fine. He actually does really quite well. You need to have people watching that. And I think what you can do with that is get people to think, yeah, he's old and he seems old, but he's clearly mentally fully there. And, you know, it is what it is. Again, that's not perfect, but you need to get it there because not because that's great, but because what they're doing now by not doing that, not scheduling a lot of, you know, high profile interviews is making it worse. And so, and you know, what you have to, what they have to play for is like, yeah, he's this old codger, but he, you know, he still has his punch. And that's, that's, that's just the reality of what they have to shoot for. I like, I fundamentally agree with that because I don't know what else you do, but I am also worried that that same dynamic that happened at the press conference, the day the report was released, will just keep happening, which is they put him out here more. He does more stuff. He And then he trips on his way up to the stage or he says the wrong name. And then that's all that people hear about it. And it just like compounds the problem. And I, I don't see any way around that. I agree with you. Like keeping him behind closed doors makes it seem scary. But I'm I'm just worried that in this kind of media environment, even if he does more interviews and taken as a whole does quite well, people are only going to hear the worst moment of them. Yeah, uh, I understand that worry. I think the, I, I think that those awkward moments are already happening, and we can rely on TikTok and Fox News to make sure every occasional voter sees them. And by putting him out there more, again, especially in interview contexts, in discussion contexts, you will have more people who see those, and not just the. The takeaway that um, you know that news reports want to do, and that's just again, I, I actually think that will accomplish more than you know more than maybe we're allowing. But there's, I have no question that is better than what they than you know than what they're doing now. And look, he's old. He's old. There's you know you're not gonna you're not gonna get around that. We are. You know, in many ways, we've been locked on this course for years now. Presidents run for re-election. Uh, certainly, they don't. He's he's basically already been nominated, right? All the filing deadlines are done. So, and I have seen that. You know, some readers are very frustrated with me that I'm not. I'm not saying yes. Biden should step aside. He absolutely should step aside. And we should have a lightning round nomination thing at the convention or something. I actually think that there is, that it's more likely than not, if that scenario happened, it would make the Democrats' chances of holding the White House substantially worse. But, but it's not happening. You know, I, I say to people who say this to me, like, okay, yes, you go down to the White House and have a talk with Joe and you like what? Like it's not gonna happen. So there there is just a, you know, kind of why are we talking about this? This yeah, is this I mean, is the race we're in and we need to try to win it. If there's one piece of this that is unambiguously very annoying, it's that we keep getting these like think pieces of Democrats might need an alternative to Biden. Here's how. It's like, shut up. Like, if you want to play fantasy politics, that's fine. But tell people that's what you're doing. Don't hide it under the guise of actual journalism because this is 
misleading at best and just kind of self-serving and and out for clicks at worst. Like Biden is going to be on the ballot as long as he's alive. Like there's just there's no changing horses midstream. Also to the point of like, well, we have all these, you know, the Gretchen Whitmers, the Josh Shapiro's, like all these kind of young whippersnappers who could do the job. Well, one of those people would have had to kind of step up a long time ago and say aggressively, I am interceding. I'm not letting him run again. And none of them did. So that's a situation where Dean Phillips stood up, you know, really late in the game, but he stood up and said, I'm an alternative and nobody went for it. And this is where we are. I actually think it's been, I like that they sent out, um, Vice President Harris to do some of the rebuttal to the report. Uh, I thought that she was kind of decisive and strong and comes from a good vantage point of spending a lot of time with him. So it it also came off as kind of believable. And I like that she was outraged on his behalf. But yeah, I mean, to me, fundamentally, I think this uh, State of the Union is going to have a lot riding on it. It's going to be the most eyeballs he has on him, maybe including the convention, but definitely until then. And it makes me really nervous and would make me very nervous at any point of Joe Biden's career to say he's got a big speech that he's got to knock out of the park. Um, not because, again, not because he's not competent or a good politician or you know a good statesman. I think he is all those things, but he's never been a particularly gifted public speaker. Though that being said, I remember thinking that his State of the Union last year was one of the best speeches I'd ever seen him give. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, he has it in him. They, they're they going to need to practice a lot, as they always do for these things, you know, kind of give it the importance it deserves. Rest because- up. Rest, yeah. get a lot of sleep. I, I actually do think that's part of it, though. And that's been true with like every president we've had that some of them have like ticks they do when they're very tired. Um, yeah. And I, I think it happens to him. I think he gets quieter and more mumbly when he's tired. So uh, seriously, mm-hmm. they should kind of like clear his deck for a few days before the speech. Yeah. Um, and the thing that is so... Like, I do I do want to appreciate the fact that this is galling, right? The idea that, like, Trump's brains are oozing out of his ears, essentially, that he went on, you know, the Nikki Haley for Nancy Pelosi thing was, like, very extended. It wasn't a brief, oh, he swapped them and then he fixed them later. Like, it was long, and he clearly had no idea that he was saying anything wrong. Well, and, and the thing is, too, is that, again, and, you know, when you were explaining that mixing up one name for another is not confusing. I think it's fair to say you're losing at that point. But having said that, when you swap one name for another, you're not confusing people. It's like a brain freeze, right? Clearly, he was talking about X. He was talking about LCC, the the Mm -hmm. president of Egypt and Gaza and blah, 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 blah. But as you say, in that case, he was literally saying, Nikki Haley, remember you, my opponent, Nikki Haley, remember when you were in charge of security on January 6th, you failed. That's really, that's like, dude, what? Like you said in a couple podcasts ago, you know, clearly there is a bucket in brain in, in Trump's, there I go, in brain, I called, I called mm. Trump brain uh, in Trump's head that just says, bitches. And he just pulled the wrong person out. But if you are, if you have, you know, adequate cognition, you, even if you have a bitch's bucket in your head, you are, are, you know, able to do that. So, you know, Trump gets a pass. There's all these reasons why he gets a pass. Um, Biden is old. We know that. I, I do think I will say this. I do think that, and I will admit that I get frustrated sometimes talking to people about this because more than anything, I don't want people to waste their time or the collective time because Joe Biden's the nominee. And we all know, even if you hate Joe Biden, we all know how important it is that Trump not become president again. And I think this, you know, when you have those think pieces, Democrats might, might need a plan B or this kind of thing like he needs to, but he needs to step aside. A lot of this goes back to the idea that A lot of people, for a range of reasons, think that there are these insiders who can make a decision and they just go over to the White House and say, Joe, I'm sorry, but it's over. You got to step down. That is not how it works. That literally is not how it works. And to me, it is a permutation 
of the idea that we saw in 2020, where the establishment, you know, everybody wanted someone different. Everybody wanted Sanders. Everyone, everybody wanted Pete Buttigieg, everybody, this person and that person. But the establishment stepped in and made it Joe Biden. That's, again, it, it, it's imagining that there's this insider establishment thing that actually is controlling the show. And that's not, that's actually not how it works. Look, certainly there are people who, there are people in democratic politics who are much more powerful and influential than you are if you are an average person you know sending 5 and 10 dollars here and there on um on act blue and and voting yes but the structure of of our general politics i mean it's even more the case on the republican side you know, the sort of the notional establishment keeps trying to do this, that, and the other, and Trump comes in and just says, fuck it, and, and, and it's done. But it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. I'm not saying it's a kind of like a, a Lockean social contract thing where there aren't more and less powerful people, but there is not a an insider group that just makes decisions and things happen. That is not how it works. And And a lot of this conversation is being egged along, I think, by the idea that that is how it works. And just the fact is, with where we are in this process, the continuing popularity of Joe Biden among Democrats, which is lower than it should be, but still very high for the simple reason that he's the president. Of course, his approval, because you can't, people, even, even at even in the most pessimistic scenario, people can't handle the cognitive dissonance of saying we've got a Democratic president, but he sucks. People support him. That's why he destroyed Dean Phillips in New Hampshire when, when he wasn't even on the ballot, and even more so in, 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 in South Carolina. So, you know, look, it, it, it's a hard situation. We're all really scared that Trump could become president again, and for really good reason. But he's going to be the nominee unless he for some reason that would defy all expectations, just wakes up and decides that he doesn't want to be president anymore, which is not going to happen, or he dies. Yeah. I mean, people didn't want him to run in 2020. You know, like if, if you couldn't convince him that time, you're certainly not going to as an incumbent president. It's too late in the process. It's silly to talk about it at this point. I mean, Trump is like barreling towards a conviction. And I, I don't see a lot of uh, stress about maybe Republicans should like prep a, a plan B. Fundamentally, this is what the race is going to come down to. I mean, it's the Biden camp's job to prove to voters that yeah, he's old, but he's up for the job, that he did a good job in his first term, and that he's got unfinished business. And barring that, they like the comparison, right? I mean, he remains the kind of decent guy who's given us the most progressive administration of my lifetime versus the, you know, the guy who's fending off a million charges and just was found liable for sexually assaulting a woman and who is getting crazier with every passing public appearance I see. I mean, I know because he has the appearance of energy that this is like not as much a concern for them, but the stuff he's saying is incredibly unhinged and getting more so. So, I mean, that's that's the task, right? That's the task for Biden and his campaign is now to prove that he can handle it. They've got a lot a long time to do so. He was fighting somewhat similar headwinds the last time around and they found a way to get it done. So, you know, I don't I know it's it's very kind of democratic to want to like go out and and you know, fall to pieces and gnash your teeth and kind of give everything up as as lost. But Trump's brand is not that strong either. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a real thing. It's a concern. It's something that they're going to have to deal with. But nobody is going to be able to kind of dispense with it except for Biden himself. So, I mean, th that's what comes next. And I, I have a rel I, I take some solace from what I would say is the fact that I really do think it is within their power to significantly improve the situation on this front by doing what I said, by getting him out for more interviews, actually talking, you know, 
talking with reporters and, and stuff like that with the knowledge that he will have these kind of bobbles and people will see that, but also see that, you know, he's there, he's basically fine and everything. And when I say take some solace from that, I don't think it's a situation where there's kind of like nothing they can do. And, you know, if you're someone who thinks we absolutely different need a different nominee, well, I feel bad for you because there's nothing you can do. I mean, and and I'm not saying like sucks to be you. I'm I'm just saying that, you know, you're kind of a hostage to fate because really not there's not an alternative at this point. But in this smaller aperture point, I, I do think there's something they, they they need to shift gears and shifting gears in that way, I think will actually, you know, make a make a pretty uh, a significant difference, although obviously it's not going to erase the issue because he's old and he looks old. And, you know, other than maybe some, I don't know, what do you do? Like you you inject his back with some cortisone to get it, loosen it up a bit. I mean, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, like get know. him whatever they give like NFL players after they go in the blue 10 and then they come back and they're fine, you know, load them up. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, get, exactly get Ronnie exactly. Jackson on the phone. This seems to be his yeah. area of well, expertise. That, everything has been downhill since, since, uh, since <laughs> exactly. Ronnie Jackson stopped being, you know, cause you need a, you need a real Dr. Feel good to be the white house yeah. doctor. Yeah, exactly. Right, so exactly. We're going to kind of wrap up with um, recent news on the congressional front where the Senate after Senate Republicans demanded border provisions to get their votes on this bundle of aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. They got that deal. Trump said, no, 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 don't want to lose my immigration cudgel to use against Biden. So they were like, yes, sir. Let this kind of hard won bipartisan border agreement fall out of the bill. Schumer put the aid standalone back on the floor. That passed. And that was not a sure thing. Um, I'm still a little bit surprised that it passed because obviously you had McConnell who, who wanted it, right? Because as we've talked about, he really wants to help Ukraine. Trump did kind of, he lobbied against the standalone as well. However, that also coincided with his comment kind of goading Russia to do whatever they want to NATO com- countries that he that don't pay enough in their own defense. So he may have like lost a little bit of moral authority on the topic with that particular comment. But his lobbying didn't really work after they capitulated on the immigration piece. Ultimately, it was like 70 or 71 senators passed on the final vote for the supplemental, which is as overwhelming as really anything can be kind of in this day, though notably, almost none of the Republicans who were like under age 55 voted for it, which does show you how this was Where a, we're going. Yep. an old guard movement. Yeah, this was yep. the kind of yep. McConnell old international world order that the, the old school conservatives have and that the new kind of Trump breed is not interested in, right? They're all doing the kind of isolationist America first thing. Um But it passed through the Senate, much to Mike Johnson's chagrin, because now he has to deal with it in the House. And it is dicey over there. I mean, we've discussed before how there's a small contingent of people who are very hostile to Ukraine aid. This also comes from the kind of new Trump wing of the party. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said she'll trigger the motion to vacate if Ukraine aid ever gets a floor vote. So now Johnson so far... I mean, he's doing his usual thing where it just kind of looks like he's spinning around looking for an exit and and tossing out the appearance of forward momentum in the meantime to kind of get reporters off his back. So his immediate statement with its past was like, well, we've got a crisis on the border. Haven't you heard? Like, we are not passing any legislation that doesn't address that, which, of course, pretends we live in a reality where he didn't just also reject the border piece of the bill. Um, So now he's kind of pretending like the House is going to work up its own version and they're going to put border stuff back in it. And you've got some of the more moderate people telling credulous reporters, we're working on our package. We're going to have it out in, in a day or two. And I think the Senate will accept it. Which brings up the same question of like, well, why would yours work when the one that the Senate made didn't work? But Johnson's point seemed to be more, you know, they're going to resurrect H.R. 2, which is the House's big kind of dream conservative immigration bill, which is obviously dead on arrival in the Senate, right? That's not going anywhere. I mean, it can barely pass the House. Not even completely clear that it can pass the House. Exactly. So hard for me to see how this could possibly pass the House, how he could put it on the floor without losing his job. There's been some chatter about using a discharge petition, which is how you circumvent leadership and get a bill on the floor that they don't want to put on the floor. So since you'd probably have some progressives drop off on the Israel piece, 
you're going to need like a dozen Republicans to get that maneuver through, which seems hard to imagine amid these House Republicans. Yeah. The one thing I that that's the one thing that seems to shift things a little, although I basically agree with your analysis is, and I'd be curious your take on this since you're up there more. It really seemed to me that Republicans forcing this through, you know, lots of them uh, voting for this, not blocking it as they did their own bill before, is they're still really pissed about what happened with that immigration compromise proposal. They got, you know, the House forced them to go through this thing. They did it. They spent months doing it. They did it. And then the House destroyed it in like one day, even though the House actually got them to destroy it for them. But same difference, that this was basically them saying enough, enough of this, fuck this. And just saying, you know, we're not going to do this thing where we're we're even going to do your dirty business for you. We're going to send this to you. And if you're going to kill it, you have to do it. We're not going to be so pathetic to do it for you. That seems to have hit kind of a, a breaking point. Now, I don't have any good explanation for how the Senate's breaking point changes anything in the House. But I do feel like it is a it's a significant line they have crossed and perhaps creates, I don't know, some, you know, some new reality. As you say, it it's and th- this is this is what people have to remember. There's lots of Republicans who, if given the opportunity, would vote for Ukraine aid. Not the hundred that you had like a year ago, whenever that was, but a lot. But signing a discharge petition basically for the opposition party is, you know, that's normally that, I mean, there's a reason why discharge petitions almost never happen. That is such a, a, a break of party discipline that it's, it's, for most people, it's unthinkable. Now, what does party discipline mean in the current Republican party? That's a, that's a bit hard to answer, but I, I am at least, it makes me want to give this like a week to see, okay, I want to see if things shake out a little differently because this was a a sign of running out of patience and exasperation by what is still a substantial faction of the Senate Republican Caucus that does seem different to me. I totally agree on the Senate side. I think passing the foreign aid by itself was a repudiation of Trump and Johnson to a lesser degree. And particularly in the Senate, there is still some remnant of the sentiment of like, I'm a U.S. senator. You know, how dare you tell me what to do? Even though obviously they had this massive embarrassing capitulation right before that. Right. I totally agree with you there. My qualms on the House side are I think that most of the factors line up against passing the bill right now, which is for a discharge petition to work, you kind of know who the likely suspects are. Those likely suspects right now are not really being enthused about it. Um, And the problem is I don't think time helps that because we are coming upon the next government shutdown at the beginning of March. So this is going to get shoved to the back burner anyway. I think for it to work, I think Jeffries has to do like an all out full court press starting right now. I mean, the House leaves at the end of this week until the end of February. And then there's three days before we hit the shutdown. And I'm sure they'll just pass a CR then, but that's what they're going to be doing. So Right. right now, I think it has to be pitched as if you care about Ukraine, like this is it. This is the last possible opportunity to do it and see if that's enough to kind of stir the, like you say, the many House members who still do want to pass Ukraine aid. And even Johnson's allies are quite candidly saying, if this bill were on the floor, it would pass easily, you know, with, yeah. a, with a pretty big yeah. majority. So I think that's the problem. And then the other concern is they can't break it up into buckets, right? Because then Ukraine will probably go down by itself. And they tried this kind of half-heartedly with Israel a week or two ago. That didn't work either. I I mean, maybe kind of suspending my disbelief on the border thing. Maybe if like this group manages to kind of put back in a few things that were in the Senate bill and somehow 
do it quietly enough that it happens kind of quickly and under the wire and before people have time to make their calculations. I mean, I'm sure at that point, even though the Senate negotiators would be so freaking mad, but I'm sure they would be like, fine, fine, you know, we'll take it. But I don't know. It just, this is the kind of thing where you can't let people have time to kind of get into their camps and solidify how they feel about things. Because for legislators, particularly Republicans, saying no is always easy. Saying no never gets you punished. So if they want that kind of core Ukraine support in the House to play ball, I think it just has to happen really fast. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's right. And I think any idea that this is going to pass in some form is really an exercise in hope over one's eyes. Um, so I think we agree on that. I will say this, and maybe we can conclude on this. I don't know why Jeffries does not do that full court press, because even if it is not likely to succeed, I think there is a strong political benefit to having the Republicans make it fail. There's just, you know, he's a young guy. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to rest up, right? I mean, why not? It's it's a political plus, even if it ends up being, you know, a failure on the policy side. So, I mean, we even see, again, anecdotally, that, you know, killing their own thing a week ago, killing their own immigration policies you know, didn't go over well with a lot of people. So that is the one thing, you know, so if you, if there is a hidden establishment that I say doesn't exist, go make, go (laughs) make Hakeem Jeffries do this, put everything into, to pushing a discharge petition. I totally agree. And like, you're in the minority, what else are you doing? And you know, at, at the worst, you get caught kind of going out on a limb trying to help Ukraine, which is not a bad thing for the brand. And it doesn't, you know, at best it works and you pass aid to to some countries that need it. And then at worst, we're where we are right now. And it's just kind of Republicans blocking a thing that lots of Senate Republicans wanted to do. Like, I, I just yeah. think the risk is like non-existent and it might as well, might as well try, yeah. might as well try loudly. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All well, right. I think that is uh, all we got for this week. Hope you've enjoyed it. We will, of course, be back uh, next week with another episode of the show. So we'll talk to you then. All right. See you later. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader